what we've done so far, right? Looked at, good morning, I don't know who you are. <laughs> My name is Roberta. Roberta, nice to meet you. Hi. Oh, okay, very well. Well, then we're gonna go from one one and just go all the way up to three, <laughs> get you caught up. <laughs> I'm Steve, Roberta, nice to meet you. Okay, so we are in chapter three. Paul is uh, basically making a case, right? It's a legal case in a sense of saying that all people are condemned under God's wrath, right? Um, not just being judged, but they are condemned, right? Meaning that they will suffer the wrath of God um, no matter who you are, no matter if you're, like he's, we've talked about, no matter if you're a barbarian Gentile, which was an unlearned, uneducated, uncultured one according to their own terms, or you were a cultured uh, pagan, um, or you were a Jew, you are under God's wrath because you have rejected his plan of salvation, basically, which is by faith through Christ. Um, and so Paul, in this, in this last section we studied, he was saying, you know, the Jews are therefore also under condemnation because they're hypocrites. They had the word, right? They had God's spoken word to them they had the oracles of God, and yet they didn't follow them. They would teach and preach that you shouldn't lie or cheat or, or, or you know, commit adultery, and yet they did. Obviously not all of them, but as a whole, they did. And so Paul basically says, you are, the law doesn't do anything for you other than point you to your unrighteousness. It teaches us, even as Gentiles, that we are unrighteous according to God's standard. And therefore, we are under God's condemnation and God's wrath. So then he has to kind of de uh, defend that although the Jews have rejected God generally as a nation, and although they're under God's condemnation, what, what now about the Jews, right? What about the Jews? Are they still going to receive the promises of God that he had promised them beforehand, right? Is there... Is the unfaithfulness of some going to prove God's unfaithfulness or his faithfulness, right? So he goes through and answers kind of these questions. So they have, the, there's a guilt of the Jews, and then there's a, the promise to the Jews, and he asks some rhetorical questions, you know, basically, um, then what advantage has the Jew? Verse 1 of chapter 3, or what is the value of circumcision? And we went, kind of went through all those things. Um, and there's, he says, much in every way. So very strongly, he says, there's significant advantages to being a Jew. And first foremost was that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So as believers 2,000 years later, we should be grateful and thankful to Israel because they brought us the word of God, right? All, every book of the Bible was written by a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. And so the promises of God to the Jews are going to be fulfilled not according to their faithfulness, the Jews' faithfulness, but according to his faithfulness. In fact, their unfaithfulness proves his faithfulness, right? That it wasn't dependent upon their obedience or isn't dependent upon their uh, acceptance. It's really just dependent upon God's word. He promises these things, and so therefore he's going to do them, right? Um, okay, so then verse 3, it's a second set of questions. Uh, and we did go over this a little bit. If some, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify their faithfulness of God? 
that it canceled the promises to Israel. Um, and that, that is what we would call replacement theology, where the church, because the church has received Christ as their Messiah and believed in Christ as the Messiah, do they now receive all the blessings that God promised to Israel? Does the church get them? And the church does receive partial blessing, but not physical blessings, right? We are spiritual blessed by the Jews because we have the word of God, we have the new covenant, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. Um, but we do not receive the physical blessings. We don't receive the physical cursings either, right? In the sense that um, Israel for almost 2,000 years, from AD 70 to 1948, um, didn't have a land, right? They didn't have a place. They didn't have their temple. They didn't have any of those things. And it wasn't until, you know, 1,800 years later or so that, that um, they, got, they got that back. And so they were under sort of a curse, and now they're under a blessing, and God still curses and blesses them um, according to their, their own uh, um, obedience to the law. But they hold themselves to the law, right? Because the law is no longer operative for salvation, right? It really was never about salvation. It was about, again, the law was about exposing yourself to being a sinner, that you are now a sinner, or you are a sinner, you're aware of being a sinner. And so it points you actually to the Messiah. The law is powerless to save you, but what it does is just let you know that you need saving, right? Um, let's see. So this idea that the church replaces Israel is answered in verse 4. Paul says, by no means, and that by no means is like the strongest expression of absolute rejection, right? That the Greek language would say, you know, may such a thought never enter your mind, right? When it says, by no means. Um, so, the, like I said, the unfaithfulness of Israel is going to prove the greater faithfulness of God. Um, God's faithfulness will be demonstrated in the millennial kingdom, um, and his promises will be fulfilled in spite of Israel's response. And that's because he's faithful within himself, not dependent upon the response of us or the Jews, right? Um, let's see. So anybody, anybody, anybody who teaches that um, God is done with the Jewish people, according to verse 4, is a liar, right? Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Um, that's a that's a, a Old Testament reference. Psalm fifty one four is that says that you may be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. So any theologian, pastor, Bible teacher, anybody that says that the, that God is done with Jewish people is a liar. Paul is saying they are a liar because God will fulfill His promises to the Jews. Um, so their unbelief has in no way canceled out God's promises to them. Um, there's always been Jewish people that come. There's always been a small remnant of Jews who accepted God's kingdom program, God's provision for salvation. Um, all the way back, we, you know, we, God tells Elijah the same sort of thing after, after raining fire on the, 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 the altar that Elijah had made, and you know, he kind of mocks them. <clears throat> Even after that, he says, Lord, why am I the only one here, right? And he's depressed and he's down and God and the Lord says, no, there's 7,000 out there. There's still a remnant out there who follow 
my provisions. <coughs> okay, so now we're at verse 5. Are we good so far? Okay, verse 5. So someone read verse 5. Okay, so here Paul's making kind of these rhetorical questions again, and here he's he's uh, you know sort of speaking on a human way, what a human or what a mankind would response. You know, should shouldn't we continue to be unrighteous if it if it shows the righteousness of God, right? Um, that he would be that that just gives him more glory. That's basically what he's saying. Shouldn't we just do that? Shouldn't I sin more so I can be forgiven more? You know, gives more glory to God. Um, and then verses 6 through 8 is now God's perspective. So verse 5 is the perspective of man. Verses 6 through 8 is, is uh, the perspective of God. So read verse 6 if you would. Certainly not. If that were so, how, how could God judge the world? Right. So man can't be excused, right? When he says certainly not, it's the same term. By no means. May it never enter your mind. That's really foolish thinking. Um, that God's faithfulness is proven by man's unfaithfulness would never excuse man. <coughs> Excuse me, there's no license for sin, right? There's no acceptance of sin. There's no toleration of sin under any circumstance because God is holy and God is just and God is righteous. Um, and if that were the case, I mean, we, we have that today in our culture. Generally, people say, well, I'm a good person, right? I do good things. I do nice things. I don't do this and I don't do that. Therefore, God shouldn't judge me, you know, because I'm a good person. Um, and that's, that's basically what that argument is, is that they're allowed to remain in their sin and still do good things, and you think that's a matter of a balance, right? Well, I do more good things than I do bad things, so therefore I should, I should be okay, right? But that contradicts God's holiness and God's judgment that he will judge the, the world. Because Paul already made the premise that all mankind is going to be condemned because they reject God, right? They look at his creation. They know that he is there. They have a conscience in their heart. They have the law of Moses, yet they create their own religion, right? They create their own idea. So Paul went down the list. It leads to idolatry. Idolatry leads to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality leads to homosexuality and then a debased mind and then you know, all these sort of things that go down, um, proving that they are under the wrath of God because of who they are. Without They are without excuse, right? Okay, then uh, read verse 7. Same type of idea as verse 5. Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Right. How is it fair to God to save, to judge a sinner if it brings him more glory, right? Mm -hmm. Then verse, verse 8, if you read that, that's the objection man's perspective. say as we are being slanderously reported as saying and as some claim that we say let us do evil that good may result their condemnation is deserved so it seems that a, a, a rumor was sort of going around um, 
that Paul was suggesting to do evil so that good may abound, right? That good may come. That's kind of what he's saying, that some are suggesting that we should just continue to do evil because it brings God glory, right? Um, he was not agreeing with that idea because truth is just that this truth is justified sin, right? The, the idea that God's faithfulness, God's glory, because he gives the way of salvation, that's truth, but that doesn't justify sin, right? That doesn't justify sin at all. Even though he's provided the way of salvation, it doesn't justify us for sin. If we don't believe in faith in his provision, which was his son, Jesus Christ, then our sin is going to condemn us. Our own sin will condemn us. And the, the propitiation or the redemption of our sin is not based upon anything we've done, but based upon what his son has done, right? So God will ultimately judge sin, but it will be judged for believers. It is judged on Christ for our behalf. For the unbeliever, they are judged on their own sin, right? God judges all sin. It's just a matter of who it's put on, essentially, right? And we put our faith and hope and hope in Christ that he carries the weight or the judgment of our sin, right? Good? And uh, I was just reading through James this week at home, and the commentary was saying, really, you know, it's seems like James is saying a lot of work, but the commentary was really talking about this arg this man-made argument, uh -huh. that it was kind of prevalent that people were saying, my sin is okay, yeah. and, and James is just kind of going hard against that argument that, you know, faith, people were saying. Faith without works is yeah, dead. Yeah. yeah, but they were just kind of claiming that I can have faith and still sin and just, I mean, they were kind of abusing the faith Meaning I have faith, but well, I'm going to go ahead and willfully sin, yeah. knowing that I can be, in other words, you know, they were, it was kind of a, he said I, it was kind of, he was kind of, you know, they're not, not saying we're saved by works, but he was just, it's so, James is so heavy on works, yeah. but he was really saying it was kind of countering kind of this first argument that Paul was making, that people yeah. were saying, well, my sin is just glorifying God, it, you know, it makes him faithful. Yeah, right, right. What's what's that? Uh, there's a there's a silly saying, something like it's easier to ask for forgiveness or something than it is permission. Or yeah, yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, ask permission than it is. It's either ask for forgiveness than ask for permission or something like that. You know, the idea that you can do it and just ask for forgiveness later on. You know, um, right. So clearly, you're right. James and Paul, we kind of have this law and this works and grace, right? Grace yeah. and mercy. And so some people say, well, why is there this dichotomy? And it's not a dichotomy when you understand the context. They work together. Works come because of our faith, right? We don't, we don't work to get faith or get salvation or get justification. Works are the result of having just been justified, right? And we don't want to displease the Lord for saving us and giving us all these spiritual blessings. And I keep saying uh, Romans 12, he says, you know, because it's all these things we're going to be going over up to Romans 12, Paul will say, therefore, because of all these wonderful, beautiful things that you've never, you don't deserve and should deserve judgment, but you've received all these spiritual blessings, therefore, 
present your body a living and holy sacrifice, which is a reasonable thing. It's reasonable to present your body to good works because if the Lord has given you all these things already, it's reasonable for you to present it to him, right? So we're kind of going through all these things. Paul's saying you're under God's judgment if you don't go by his provision, but his provision is that righteousness has been revealed and it's been revealed in his son, right? So all these things, so it's, it's very good. So, so to, to wrap up this section, the Jew is just as guilty as, as, and under as much condemnation of God as the Gentile. They are, even though they have been chosen, they personally are just as condemned as the Gentile because their uh, ha having possessed the law of Moses doesn't save them. All it does was expose them what righteousness is and what their unrighteousness is. And the Gentiles also, they have the general revelation of creation, and then they have the consciences in their heart, and they have a responsibility to respond positively to the Lord, right? So salvation and God's judgment are concerned. As far as salvation and God's judgment is concerned, the Jew is no better than the Gentiles, um, and so they are both under God's wrath. And so now this is going to be, so now the next section from 9 through 20 is going to be the proof of this universal guilt again, right? So remember, Paul is, if you can sort of imagine in your mind that he's in putting himself in sort of a court base to, to, to have God be the judge, man, Jew, and believing, unbelieving, all in this sort of, you know, uh, courtroom being accused, and can they find an excuse without God's provision? And he kind of goes through and says, no, you can't have an excuse without God's provision. So, okay, so this... This um, connects with the previous eight verses, the next section, which is 9 through 20. Uh, but again, the greater context of this bigger section is 118, Romans 118. And it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that's the whole point, is that truth is here, truth is available. And when you reject truth, your ungodliness and unrighteousness is going to be under the wrath of God, right? It's going to, and it is revealed from heaven against that. So here's, here's a conclusion from these questions that he's been asking. Um, verse 9, if someone read verse 9. under sin, right? So he answers the question, right? So he asks questions, rhetorical questions, for, and they're an obvious, uh, you know, affirmative or, or negative based upon the question. Um, but he's, he answers that they're all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, right? Um, okay, so he prevent, he, like I said, he prevent, presented that the Gentiles were, he presented that the Jews were, um, and so in spite of the advantages of the Jewish people, they are not better off than Gentiles because both people groups are under sin, right? So now he's going to demonstrate this from the Old Testament, right? The Hebrew Bible. So he's going to quote seven passages. Um, as it is written, he's going to say these things. So, um, so it's first, let's see, the first two quotations are from the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, verses 10b and 12. So if someone read 10b and 12. Or 10 through 12, yeah. 
So no one is righteous, no, not one, right? So Paul's quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, um, that it is universal. So the next five quotations, he explains that all humanity has fallen into total depravity, right? Um, so read 13 and 14, if you would. So that's pretty harsh, right? Pretty hard. And that's all of that's universal, right? That's universal uh, Jews and Gentiles. So that's from Psalms, Psalms 5, Psalm 40, Psalm 10. And then verses 15 through 17 are a quotation of Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. So if we read 15 and 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. So these same, these same concepts, Christ accused the Pharisees of, right? These same thing. They don't have... So 2,000 years ago, the same mentality was there. Then, then 1,500 years, or I should say 700 years before that, God is telling the psalmist uh, to write these things about the culture then too, about man's heart then. So really, like Solomon says, nothing, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We look at our, at our culture now, and we can see that that is a very common thing. Throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, right? The venom of asses under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Right, so that's our culture too. It was their culture back in 2000, you know, and, and when Christ was here, and it was the same mentality when the psalmist wrote these things. And then uh, the last quotation is verse 18, and it comes from Psalm 36, if you'd read that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is Paul's way of validating his conclusion Right, that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin due to their character, due to their speech, due to their conduct, that no matter how many good things you think you do, no matter how many times you give to the altar turtle doves or whatever, or you know you do kind things, you're under sin because your character, speech, and conduct is still under God's sin, right? I'm sorry, still under your own sin, under God's condemnation. So that now in verse 19 and 20, he's going to give an application of this conclusion. And it's a, the condemnation is applied to the whole world. So now read 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, says, speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no flesh Okay, so we learn there that the law comes the knowledge of sin, right? That's one of the reasons. So um, Paul's saying we, now we know that whatever the law says, because Paul is a fellow Jew, right? Um, that the, the law of Moses speaks to the one whom has it, it has been given, and that is to the Jews. Um, but the Jews are guilty of breaking the law. 
And because they are guilty of breaking the law, all are guilty because Israel was the test case, right? The whole purpose of God's choosing a people group, whether it would have been the North Koreans or whether it would have been the Israelites or whether it would have been, you know, the United Statesians, I don't know. We, he chose a people group to be the light to the world, right? And they failed their test case. They failed that test. And just like I said, we would have failed too, I, I presume, you know. Um, the Jewish privileges do not and cannot save from sin, um, and they don't provide exemption from judgment. So then what is the whole purpose of the law? If the law came, they failed, and, and the law is just there, doesn't save you, what is the purpose of the law? And so the book of Romans will answer this question several times and in different ways. One of these times is here in verse 20, and it says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Um, and that's what we said. The law never was meant to justify a person. Um, it only made you aware of your sinfulness. So the, the law delivers the evidence that you're condemned. Um, it won't justify. It's powerless to justify you. So all are guilty before God, no matter if you follow the law perfectly or it will can't follow okay. perfect, <laughs> but even if you tried, you know, 99%. Um, and so again, the pagans have the witness of creation, the Jews have the law, um, with, and all those things are sufficient to condemn them. Their conscience, they have an awareness of God's law written on their hearts, the conscience is there, but that conscience is sufficient to condemn them. So just just as you have a, a, a conscience to tell you right or wrong, that conscience is also the double-edged part of the, so, the sword, but that will condemn you. The knowledge condemns you, right? Okay, so now the good news, right? Having shown that no one is righteous, then he, then he will now deal with God's answer to this universal guilt, right? This is the good news. Um, that all are condemned, all are worthy of judgment, all will receive judgment if you don't follow God's uh, answer. And so now Paul will introduce, um, I shouldn't say introduce, because he introduced it back in verse chapter 1, verse 17, when he says, the righteous will live by faith, right? The righteous shall live by faith. So he's saying righteousness comes by faith, not by law, not from your conscience, not from general revelation. It comes by faith. And so then what is the object of your faith? So now there's a so there's a, a transition here, a logical transition in verse 21 of this universal condemnation that man is under. So read verse 21, if you would. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. All right, so he says, but, right, now the right, so... We're all unrighteous, no, not one. We all have our character, our speech, and our conduct is, is sinful. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets told them, told people that their, God's righteousness would be obtainable, but it wouldn't be through the law, right? So apart from any principle of law, which we are all under, um, the righteousness of God has been revealed, and it's been revealed in His Son, right? Um, <clears throat> uh, 
So this is not new, meaning this is not now being said right now. It has been, it has been revealed in the Old Testament already. The righteousness of God is called imputed righteousness, right? He has, basically, God is assigning to someone else. When a person places his faith in Christ, God assigns or, or attributes that perfect righteousness of his son to the account of the believer, right? That's in 2 Corinthians as well. So it's a, it's a judicial statement, right, to the believer to be as justification. God declares the person legally righteous. Um, but you, so we know you can't get this from following the principle of law that's written in your heart, from seeing general revelation, from following the law of Moses. Um, it is a righteousness that is not earned, but is a free gift of God, right? And the way this free gift of God is assigned um, is revealed in verses 22 and 23. So let's see verses 22, someone read 22a. Right, so, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, right? So Christ's righteousness is appropriated to the believer's faith, right? Through faith, the believer attains this righteousness. So a moment the person believes in what Christ did on the cross, the righteousness is imputed to him. Um, the, uh, God declares the believer not guilty. And so here's the question, are you actually righteous or are you just declared righteous? Declared. Just declared, right? You don't become instantly 100% uh, law abiding, you know, law, law Moses, but God declares you not guilty, right? Because the penalty was paid. And so that's the sanctification process is that every day, moment by moment, as we are cleansed by the Holy Spirit, as we are confessing our sins, he's faithful to cleanse us of our sins, right? Um, <clears throat> so the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Um, so Paul, having, having separated Jew and Gentile, saying they're all under condemnation, he's now saying, but the righteousness of God is available, and it's available to Jews and Gentiles alike. So let's read uh, verse 22b and 23. Right, so regarding salvation, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Um, there's only one way to get saved, and that is by grace through faith in God's provision, which is his son, right? In Isaiah 53, it says it pleased God to, to have his son on the cross. It pleased him to put the curse of man on his son. That's an incredible concept to learn about God's character, it pleased him to be able to provide the sacrifice or to provide the righteousness or to provide the solution to the problem of sin. And it, it pleased him that he could do it justly, right? And with honor and with holiness and with rightness. Um, it pleased him and it pleased the son to do it for the father, right? His whole purpose of coming to this earth was to do the will of the father. Not my will, he says, but my Father's will be done, right? What an incredible, why are, why are, 
you know, this is just a side question. Why are we so valuable, right? That he would do those things in spite of being condemned, in spite of having, you know, all those, <laughs> what, what, what was it? No, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use tongues to deceive. Venom of asses under their lips. Mouth is full of cursing bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And yet God finds pleasure in sacrificing his son so that we could be back with him. Right? What a if that's not love, then what is love? Right? There is no love. That is love. That is the ultimate example of love. And we should have at least half of love for our fellow brothers, right, and sisters and humankind. But he, it pleased God to be able to provide the provision of righteousness in spite of our character, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our sinfulness, all the things that are listed, he gives us a free gift. And that's, that's, I don't, I don't have words to describe that. Um, Basically telling you to love one another. Right. Like I did. Right. So why do you think it is that we can know this stuff intellectually and figure that the most of us in the room, if not all of us in the room, are Christians have been doing this for years, and yet we still struggle with this character defect. And there's still stuff that pops up that, like, oh man, I wasn't even realizing this was a problem in my life. <laughs> like, why, why do we? So if I embrace this, that God loves me this much, and if this is true, then this truth changes everything, then how come I just can't stay away from peace? Well, I think you just get busy, and before you know it, you're having a bad fall. have Satan roaring like a like a lion going through back and forth seeking who he can devour and we have our flesh I'm sure God could zap us all as soon as we become saved. Yep. We could be zapped and be perfect, but it hasn't happened that way. So I mean, there's hope, right? There's hope. Hope. Hope is what we look. Hope is what we have to look forward to. Paul will actually answer that question because he says, "Oh, you know," he'll say, "I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do." Oh, wretched man of 
who can save me from myself, basically, right? So he's going to... And Paul, Paul had seen Christ, right? And, and he boasts in the fact that Christ gave him revelation that not all anybody else had gotten, right? And yet Paul himself recognizes the weakness of himself. And it's like we're saying, the, our flesh, we're, we're in a corrupted, decaying body. And so our hope of future glorification is what motivates us to keep going on. And we, we, if we were perfect, would we have to have faith, right? Would we still have to have faith? Because faith in what? You've already received it, right? You've already, you've already got this perfected glory. But we, we, you know, what, what another, I think that's Corinthians says, you know, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, right? Because you won't have faith and you won't have hope in the millennial kingdom because you're going to already have, the faith gave you the glorification, the hope is it's already here, but what remains is love because love, look at how much God has loved us, right? And so we will love others, we will love others even better. But that's, that's, a, that's an appropriate response, I think, is to hate ourselves yeah. in the sense of we are so capable of confessing with our mouths but doing something completely different. You know, we're very capable of it. And I think that, keep, that keeps us on our knees. That keeps us in a humility of heart. It keeps us from being, and it, it forces us or pushes us to be grateful and to be thankful. And that's one of the things that we want to do is always be be what what does he say in Philippians? Um, Philippians four, right? I've learned to be grateful in all things, all circumstances, right? Uh, with 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 supplication and thanksgiving, let your request, request be made known to God, because the peace of God, will sur which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart, right? Um, it's, it's Philippians four. I'm sorry, I'm messing it up, but that's 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 the sin nature within us being sinners yet being saved is what we get our lifeline from him and that's the relationship we need him to sanctify us otherwise my brain would be like oh i'm perfect already thank you you know i don't need you basically you know and and i think that there's there's hope in knowing that i don't think i know that there when i have hope that i will receive a body that is incapable of sinning i will i will be even more grateful and will see christ and will commune with christ in that fashion so but Paul will answer his own his own question, right? With that. But that's good. Anybody else? Comments on that? That's good. Because I think that's our like I said, that's an appropriate. We we should when we are going through this and we recognize that we are sinners, and yet He sent His Son to save us from ourselves. Our reasonable response is gratitude and thankfulness, right? It really right. is. So, you know, when I eat the peanut, and then you feel guilty about eating that peanut, and you repent, then you are thinking, man, God, you, I don't even deserve your forgiveness, God, but here you are forgiving. It, it, yeah, so yeah. You're, you're more appreciative of God. Working in your life. Just putting up with us and being so long-suffering. <laughs> right. Good. It's got, but not to twist that, to yeah. sin to make it happen. Yeah, don't do that to but make God's glory. Why do we go back to the peanut? Yeah. But when I was young and I, I became a Christian, I, I think I had in my head that I was going to let myself apply. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to take you long, but yeah. Well, and that's a part of James too. 
knowledge puffs you up, right? We know this stuff, and we know that we've been given all these mercy and grace and all these gifts, and we can become a little self-righteous within ourselves too, right? We can be kind of think, well, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm walking around the Lord. I'm, I'm in favor with the Lord, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, and, and so it's, it's like a labyrinth of trust and faith. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We have to always go back to him to help you on this path. And if we don't, we, like I've said before, I'm a professional, I'm a professional justifier of my own behavior. You know, I can rationalize to the best of anything. But if I really look at myself, I go, what a loser, right? What a weak hearted man you are because you have this understanding yet you still do these things or think these thoughts or have, you know what I mean? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm embarrassed of myself. I, I, I'm ashamed of myself. And, but at the flip side, that's what we want. We want our conscience to tell us, oh, what a loser you are because you know you have all these things. So I, I don't mean to beat yourself up, but just to remind you that you are, we're very capable of being anything bad, you know, very capable. That's good. Okay, well, I guess we're gonna have to stop right there. <laughs> um, good. Or maybe it's just you, Matt. I think you're the only one that struggles with that. <laughs> you, need to, you need to step up your game, man. Come on. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, Lord. Just kidding. <laughs> so Satan will even use other people to get you. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's that's another that's very true. We, if we don't remain in the Word, and I think you said yes. that you, you you could go about thinking idolatrous ways because you made up your mind about what you think God is, and then you come to find out, oh my gosh, that's not true, you know. And that's a prayer that we need to have if we want to know Him according to His standards, according to His revealing to us. You know, teachers and preachers can lead a people astray without really even knowing it, right? And so if we don't know his word, we are going to naturally incline ourselves to idolatry, a figment of what we think God is based upon either taking something out of context or imagining it in ourselves, minds, what he, we think he is. And so <clears throat> our, our, what is prayer? Prayer is identifying with God his will right we come alongside him we don't ask him to come alongside us in our lives we say Lord let your will be done let me come alongside you so prayer is us identifying with his will whatever it is because it will be perfect but when we when we try to get him to do what we want you know we, we will create an idolatrous impression of him you know and that's what that's what we have to guard our hearts is to to know that Scripture is what our boundaries are so that we can know him as he really is, right? And we have to be very careful. So, okay, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we bow our hearts before you in humility, Lord, and in, in obedience and in awe because of our wickedness and our wretchedness. And none of us deserve it, and yet you give it to us. You individually breathe life into each one of us. And 
we're thankful, we're grateful. That's our reasonable response is just to be thankful and just rest in that idea that you have imputed righteousness to us and that you are moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, changing us, cleansing us, sanctifying us to be more like your son. We, Lord, we beg you to continue that process and that we would not hinder that or quench the Holy Spirit, Lord, but that we would be open and that we would be uh, willing to respond appropriately to our conscience, which is searing our, our, our thoughts and our ideas. So we ask, Lord, that you would increase our faith. We believe, Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Help us to not be deceived. Help us to not um, create an imagination of you that is not true, Lord, but that we would be grounded and founded in your word and that we would study your word and that we would pray in you and be aligned in you. Lord, we pray for the church service, that it be glorifying to you as a corporate body. We look forward to this week that you would use us, Lord, but that you would continue to sanctify us, give us hope of a future glorifying glorification, and that you will fulfill your promises to uh, your people, Israel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>